the one who stands beside me. That's you, God. The one who goes before me, the one who comes behind me. I'm encompassed in your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you. As we now look into your word together as your people, I pray that you would help me. This morning's text is a hard and difficult text, but it is an essential text for us because it's through this text that we learn that regardless of what comes, you are with us and you will keep us and you are for us. And we know that because of Jesus. So show us his grace and his glory this morning through his word I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, so much for leading us this morning. It is a pleasure to sing alongside of you. And I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures this morning, please, to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, we want you to be able to see the words of God for yourself this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have a Bible for you. You'll find one in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible located in the hymnal rack beneath you. It's page 1010, 1010 in your copy of the church Bible. It is good to have our deaf ministry here with us this morning. Thank you so much for being here. I love having you with us, and so I say hi to them. Let's all say hi to them this morning, all right? Very good, very good. Um, We've been studying the Gospel of Mark, and all the way through the Gospel of Mark, and especially the last couple of weeks, I have known this text is coming. And there are texts you really look forward to preaching as a pastor to your, the people God has given you to pastor. And there are also texts that you're like, hmm, I'd rather kind of just like skip over this one maybe. And this is one of those. This morning, as I've told you before, there are certain texts that I preach where I feel the weight of eternity pressing down on me as I preach them. This is one of those texts. And I can just imagine that if I feel that this morning with you, how much more Jesus must have felt that with his guys as he is sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple in Jerusalem, reminding them and telling them that that temple is going to be destroyed and to them it's going to feel like the end of the world has come. And it's going to be hard for them and difficult for them and he loves them in this and through this and so he is going to prepare them for this he spent two and a half years with these guys he loves them deeply and yet in just less than 72 hours he is going to die three days later he will rise from the dead And then less than two months later, he will ascend to his Father in heaven and he will leave them behind on earth. And he wants them to know he will not be alone. He wants them not to be caught off guard. 
It's why he's come. He's come to live his life on purpose. And that purpose that he has demonstrated for us in dying for us on the cross will reach out and telescope out into eternity, into the purpose he has called us to, to be with him forever and ever. And nothing and no one can stop that or change that. And he wants his guys to know that. And he wants us to know that this morning. So let's pick up the text in chapter 13 of Mark's gospel and verse 14. This is what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus on the Mount of Olives teaching his disciples regarding the end times. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. This is the word of our God. And this is one of the texts that so many people will point to, saying that they have a problem with God as he reveals himself in the Bible. Because in texts like this, they do not see the love of God. They only see God as a distant and disconnected, omnipotent ogre rather than a close and personal loving father. And they think that about God because they fail to connect the dots between his love and his justice, between his mercy and his wrath. That's why skeptics love to pick on the story that I taught to your children and your grandchildren in vacation Bible school two weeks ago. The story of Noah and the flood. How could a good God wipe off the face of the earth hundreds of thousands of people in a torrential rain and flood? How? How do you explain that? Tomorrow, if you're at work and someone asks you that question, what is your response? Let me tell you a story. I'm not sure how many of you have had the pleasant experience of ever having your home broken into. But when I was in sixth grade, my dad was returning home from picking up my youngest brother from kindergarten when he noticed that a car was backed into our garage. And as dad was walking up the driveway, the driver of that car pulled out of the garage right past dad and took off down the street at a high rate of speed. Dad thought, hmm, this is odd. And so he walked into the house and he noticed first 
right there in the kitchen that the microwave oven was missing. Now, I need to do a little, a little caveat here because those of you who are younger than I am, you're like, why would anyone steal a microwave? You need to understand in the early 80s when all this went down, microwave ovens were what? They were new. They had just come out on the market and they were valuable. And then dad headed into the living room and discovered that our big stereo speakers, our tower stereo speakers were missing. And then there were several other things that were missing as well. And so he went to the police station, reported the robbery, and 17 miles north of town, the highway patrol spots the vehicle. And as they're attempting to pull over the vehicle, the thief opens the back of his hatchback and pushes out the microwave and the stereo speakers right into the path of an 18-wheeler. It didn't end well. That man turned off the interstate, didn't realize a T was coming up in the road, and so he crashed his vehicle. He took off out of his vehicle, and the police, rather than chasing them, this is back in the old days in the Wild West, But the police, rather than chasing him, just pulled out a revolver and shot once in the air, and he hit the floor. He hit the ground. They arrested him. Now, here's what I want to ask you about this story. What if, at his arraignment, the judge says to him, I know you are guilty. You wronged this family. You stole their stuff. You broke the law. But you know, I'm a good judge. I'm a loving and merciful judge. And so I'm just going to excuse your crime. Congratulations, sir. You are free to go. Is that a good judge? Is that judge really a loving and merciful judge? No. He is a crooked judge who is failing to uphold justice on behalf of those who have been wronged. You see, a good judge won't excuse evil or overlook evil. A good judge must execute justice by punishing evil. And so it shouldn't surprise us that our God, the judge of the universe, that there will come a day when he will bring the hammer down on evil. A good God must punish evil. The God of love must be a God of justice. That's the big idea from this text today because that's what's going down in this text in Mark 13 where we read about the abomination of desolation that occurs during a time of unprecedented tribulation that's characterized by big-time spiritual deception. It's all about a time when the wrath of God rains down from heaven upon the earth with such fury that Revelation 6 verses 15 through 17 say this. The kings of the earth, the great and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves. They will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling on the mountains and rocks fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne for, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? 
It will be so horrific, so horrible, so terrible that rather than face the wrath of God, people will be begging the mountains to fall on them and save them from the wrath of God. God's wrath is an infinitely scary thing. Now, I don't say that to you to shock you or frighten you. I say that to you to plead with you to run to Jesus and find shelter from that wrath. Run to him in faith. He's the only one that can save you from that wrath. It's Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. And as I read this, I want you to notice the connection between the love of God and the wrath of God. Its connection is Jesus. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, We have now been justified. We're saved. We're redeemed. We're credited with the righteousness of Jesus by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath of God. So to be a follower of Jesus, to be a believer in Jesus, means that you are forever sheltered from the wrath of God. Amen? We will never face the wrath of God because Jesus faced it for us and he did it all. He absorbed it all. There is nothing left for us to absorb God's wrath against our sins. We are saved from it forever. And that's why 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says that believers in Jesus will be saved from the wrath to come. Now, I have good friends, I mean really, really good friends, who disagree with what I'm about to say. And they're still going to be my friends into eternity when they figure out that what I believe is right, okay? (laughs) I say that tongue-in-cheek. But I believe the Bible teaches that prior to this time of great tribulation in the future, Jesus will come and will take believers home to heaven to be with him where he will shield us from the wrath of God that is raining down on the earth. I believe that. Now, we need to be clear here that that doesn't mean that Christians will never experience tribulation. We will. Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, that in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome this world. We will face tribulation. Your your boss may mistreat you. Your spouse may walk out on you. Your parents may disown you. But because Jesus has overcome the world by dying and rising again for you, I'm convinced that there is one tribulation you will never face. The wrath of God that will rain down upon the earth in this future time of tribulation. And to get that, we've got to go all the way back to Mark chapter 13 and verse 1, where one of the disciples makes a passing comment about how breathtakingly beautiful this temple in Jerusalem is. And Jesus says, okay, guys, there's something you need to know about this temple. My work in this world is not limited to a building or a place. And so you need to know that the temple's going to bite the dust. 
And because everything in the Jewish world revolved around that temple, the disciples cannot fathom a world without a temple, and so they equate the temple's destruction with the end of the world as they know it. And that's why they asked Jesus, when's this going to happen? And what are the signs going to be that we'll know when this time is drawing near? And Jesus tells them, look, Jesus tells them there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. The kingdom will rise against kingdom and nation against nation. And there will be famines and earthquakes. And there will be great persecution for you. All of that prior to the destruction of the temple. But there's more here. And that's why during our first two weeks in Mark chapter 13, I've said that there's a telescopic nature to Jesus' prophecies here. Now let me explain. How many of you live in a home with a two-story foyer or family room? You have some room in your house where the ceiling is like 16 or 18 feet from the floor. Anybody? Okay, five, six. Can I get another hand? Okay. (laughs) My question to you is, If you have a a ceiling in your home that's that tall, how do you get rid of those cobwebs that inevitably appear up in the corners of that tall ceiling? It's like the spiders know that you can't get them. How do you get those spider webs without having to pull out a 10-foot stepladder? Well, instead, you you pull out your 5-foot telescoping pole. But you know what a telescoping pole is? You're painting, you're washing windows, and, and it's such a cool invention because at first it just appears to be a five-foot pole. And then you twist one end and it's like, voila, magic. Out comes another five-foot pole. Telescoping out from that first five-foot pole, which you will use to show those spiders who's boss. And that telescoping pole is an illustration of how this chapter works of how Jesus is teaching here because much of what he prophesies here is like that first five foot section of pole it's fulfilled during the disciples lifetime with the destruction of the temple but like that next five foot section that telescopes out the prophecies the disciples see fulfilled in their lifetime foreshadow what's going to happen prior to when Jesus returns again to earth Okay, so I know that is the world's longest introduction. Okay, and you're like, if that's the introduction, how long are we going to be here today? I don't know. We'll find out together, okay? But are you still with me? Can we go on? Because Jesus is about to show us that a good God must judge evil. And it's evil that takes center stage when in verse 14 Jesus says, okay, guys, I'm going to get very specific here. You'll know the end is near when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now, that phrase, the abomination of desolation, may be an unfamiliar term to us, which is why, notice, Mark inserts the phrase, I think, let the reader understand. But just because we don't understand or aren't familiar with this phrase doesn't mean Jesus' disciples wouldn't be. They are. They know exactly what Jesus is referring to. And that's why Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he records this scene, 
He points us back to the Old Testament book of Daniel in chapter 11, verse 31, where Daniel prophesies that there will come a day when an army will swoop into Jerusalem and desecrate the temple by taking away the Jews' sacrifices to God and offering a sacrifice on the altar there that will make the temple desolate. It will be an abomination that will cause desolation. And Jesus' disciples would know That 400 years after Daniel makes that prophecy and 200 years prior to this moment in Mark chapter 13, on December 15th, 167 BC, a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes marches his quarter of a million man army into Jerusalem and does the unthinkable by sacrificing a pig on the altar of the temple. And then he sets up a statue of Zeus, demanding that the Jews bow down to worship it. And the Jews are forced to abandon the temple. The disciples know that name, Antiochus Epiphanes, and what he did to the Jews in the same way we know the name Adolf Hitler and what he did to the Jews. And Jesus is telling his guys, now listen, you remember what happened in 167 BC. You know that history. And I'm about to tell you that it's going to be deja vu all over again. And 40 years after Jesus makes this prophecy in 70 AD, it happens again. The Roman general Titus marches his army into Jerusalem and desecrates the temple by sacrificing to false gods on the altar there and then hailing himself as the Savior of the world. And all of it happens at Passover when 2.5 million Jews are in town. Titus lays siege to the city. And over the next several months, 1.1 million Jews will die of starvation. It was, in a very real sense, an unprecedented tribulation for the Jews. But there's an even greater tribulation that's coming because 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 describes a day when the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, we know him as the Antichrist, he will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God like Titus and like Antiochus Epiphanes. So there's a future abomination of desolation when this worldwide leader will set up a throne in the temple and claim to be God in the flesh. It will be a time of unprecedented tribulation. And that's why Jesus says here in verse 14, let those who are in Judea, when this all goes down at some point in the future, let them them flee to the mountains for safety. It's going to be so bad that people won't go back into their home to grab picture albums and teddy bears and baby blankets. And if you're plowing in a field, you aren't going to take the time to grab your jacket before hightailing it out of there. And for ladies who are pregnant or nursing infants, it's going to be really tough, especially if it's winter. Because Jesus says in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Wow. Unprecedented. Unparalleled. 
unequal tribulation. It's going to be worse than Noah's flood, worse than the ten plagues in Egypt, worse than Hitler's concentration camps, worse than Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And that's why the big question in Revelation 6 verse 17 is, the great day of God's wrath has come and who can stand? No one. No one can stand God's wrath unless God shows mercy in the midst of wrath and cuts short the duration of that tribulation. And that's what God will do. Not because he is having second thoughts or weighing other options. It's what Jesus says right here in verse 20. If God did not throttle back his wrath, no human being would ever be saved. Nobody at all, ever. But God will show mercy in that day. Just like he has right here in our day. Because Ezekiel 18 verse 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. That's judgment. So if God did not limit his wrath, the precise moment I committed my very first sin, God would have given me what I deserved, and then bam, he gone. But God throttled back his wrath. And so I stand before you today as living proof of God's mercy. And that's why I plead with you today. See God's mercy on display in the fact that though you've sinned against him, you're still breathing air given by him. Young people, young people, young people, young people. I heard the story of a young person just this week. Another one bites the dust. They've quit on Jesus. They've given up on Jesus. Young people, you're making decisions right now that will set the course of your life. And you're on the fence about following Jesus. I plead with you this morning, see his mercy. Feel the mercy you're breathing in, in the air he is giving you. Singles, maybe you're disappointed with God. You've wanted a spouse. You've prayed for a spouse and still no sign of a spouse. See his mercy. Parents, Maybe your kids have walked away from Jesus and there are no signs that they're coming back to Jesus. Even though you've pleaded with God to bring them back and you're beginning to doubt his power and his love, see his mercy. The air we breathe today is mercy. Our hearts beating today, it's mercy. The fact that we awakened this morning to face a new day. That's mercy. It's Lamentations 3 verses 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
Each day on this earth, every inhabitant of this earth is breathing in the air of God's mercy. And whether we realize that or acknowledge that, the fact is we cannot live without that. The earth is full of God's mercies. Even during that coming time of severe tribulation where God will throttle back the fullness of his fury for the sake of the elect. It's for the sake of those he has chosen to redeem and to save. And so during that time of tribulation, there will be people who will see the mercy of God and will respond to God by repenting before God and professing faith in the Son of God. But in those same days, others will view God's mercy not as kindness, but as weakness. And they will rise up and claim to be the Son of God, the Messiah. They will thumb their nose at God. And so the coming tribulation will be a time marked by spiritual deception. And it will be deception. It will be a deception that is super convincing. These false Christs will perform signs and wonders and miracles. Revelation chapter 13 talks about how the Antichrist will appear to have a mortal wound and then will raise from the dead. Let me ask you, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like Jesus? Except Jesus receives a mortal wound. He dies on the cross and then he rises again the third day. The Antichrist will deceive the nations by imitating Jesus. You know, that's always been Satan's MO. He's always attempting to emulate and replicate God's work and that's how he manipulates people. It's all so subtle, so sly. That if it were possible, if it were possible, that even the elect, God's people, would be led astray. But praise God, that is not possible. Those who truly belong to God will be kept by God and will never be led astray from God. That's what we said last week from verse 13 of Mark 13. True believers in Jesus will endure to the end and be saved. It's what Jesus himself says in John 5 verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has at that very moment, has not just life, he has eternal life. You can't lose eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He will not face the wrath, but has passed from death to life. And maybe you're thinking, well, PK, if that is true, that believers cannot be led astray from God, then why does Jesus say here to be on guard and don't be led astray? Listen carefully. God's grace in keeping us doesn't make us passive, K-Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be kind of people. God's grace makes us active. God's grace makes us strong. God's grace causes us to endure and persevere. We will not be led astray because we are being kept by the love of God. And so as that little book Jude in the New Testament says, 
because we're being kept by the love of God, we will keep ourselves in the love of God. So God guards us from going astray. So I say to you, because he guards us from going astray, be on guard against going astray. And then Jesus says here, that's why I've told you all these things beforehand, so that you will be on guard and so that you will keep yourselves in the love that's keeping you. You are kept, so keep. Okay, well, that's Jesus' teaching. On the coming time of tribulation for the disciples, when the temple is destroyed and decimated, which foreshadows and telescopes out into that time of tribulation that will break out across the earth in the future. So let me ask, how does this apply to us today who are living between those two events, the destruction of the temple and the coming tribulation? Let me give you three takeaways from this text. Number one, See the love of God. See the love of God. And this is where I really need you to tune in. This is where I need you to track with me. The wrath of God we see raining down on earth during the time of tribulation will be horrible and dreadful and awful. It's why those people in Revelation 6 are pleading for the mountains to fall on them and to crush them rather than face the wrath of God against them. But remember, even that is not the full force of God's wrath. Even that is not the pedal to the metal wrath. It's a cut short wrath. A throttled back wrath. But there has been a time when God did not throttle back his wrath. There's been a place where God held nothing back. There's been a person who's faced the full fury of God's hot and holy wrath in full. It's Jesus on the cross, outside of Jerusalem, drinking in the full cup of God's wrath against our sins. And that's why we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he is betrayed and arrested. He is sweating drops of blood as he is pleading with his Father, if there is any other way, let this cup of your wrath pass from me. And there's silence from heaven. Because there is no other way for God's justice to be satisfied. Jesus is the only way, which is why just hours later we hear him cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's agony for Jesus so that it can be grace for me. It's death for Jesus so that it can be life for me. It's wrath for Jesus so that it can be love for me. It's what I said earlier from Romans 5 verses 8 and 9. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. Jesus from the wrath of God. And the only way that can happen is if Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God against my sin. 
The only way that can happen is if the cross is where God's love and God's justice meet. Because it's on the cross where Jesus trades places with me. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous one who deserved no wrath in the place of the unrighteous ones who deserve all wrath. And he dies in our place for us so that he might bring us to God, so that God would treat us as sons and daughters rather than enemies. So John 3 verse 36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But get this. But the wrath of God remains on him. I plead with you this morning, friends. Feel the weight of this text. Feel the weight of God's wrath. And run to Jesus in faith. Believe on Jesus, the one who trades places with sinners like you and me and be saved by, from, from the wrath of God by Jesus. Believe on him, the Bible says in Acts 16 verse 31, and you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath forever. Because Jesus paid it all. Would you trust him? Would you come to him? Would you repent of your sins and embrace him by grace alone, through faith alone? Right now. Because when you do, then not only will you see the love of God, you'll trust the plan of God. God will bring these days of tribulation to a screeching halt. Because to prolong those days would be too much for his people. You know what that means for you? If God's got his people in this worldwide time of tribulation, then he's got you in your personal time of tribulation. He's in total control of your tribulation like this tribulation. He's in control of the frequency, the intensity, and the duration. He's got it all, and he's got all of you in it all. That's why 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted or tested or tried beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will make the way of escape. So that, why? So that you may be able to endure it. Where are you doubting that this morning? Where are you questioning that? Where are you wondering about that? Where are you saying, God, this is too much. It is too long. It is too hard. And God says, see. See my mercy. See my love. It is sufficient for you. So even in your suffering, you can trust the plan of God because you see the love of God so that you can thirdly wait on the justice of God. Wait for the justice of God.
I say to you, friends, this morning, and we're going to look at this next week, at the second coming of Jesus, when he comes back to earth to execute his justice and to set up his worldwide kingdom forever. I say to you, listen, you can wait for the justice of God. You know why? Because judgment day is coming. Judgment day is coming when every wrong you've endured will be turned upside down. Every sin committed against you will be turned inside out. Every tear you've wept will be wiped away. And every evil you've endured will be repaid. One of the recurring themes in the book of Revelation, the book of the end times, is that God will vindicate His people forever. He will bring the hammer down on behalf of His people. And His promised justice frees you then from seeking vengeance and getting even with those who've wronged you. And let me just ask you for a moment. Who comes to your mind when I say that? Who's wronged you so badly and hurt you so deeply? That you see them right now in your mind's eye. God's justice frees you from seeking vengeance and getting even with them. Instead, you can... Love on them and pray for them because you know that the God who loves his people will execute justice on behalf of his people. Do you believe that? That's one of the big things that makes us different than the rest of the world as followers of Jesus. How do we respond when we are wronged? Do we leave the wrath to God? Or do we take it on ourselves to execute by ourselves? Trust the plan of God. See the love of God. Wait for the justice of God. For he has said in Isaiah 25 verses 8 and 9, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. So let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation forever. Amen. Father, this is a hard text. It is a weighty text. But it is an essential text. And I pray, Lord, that you'd work in our hearts through this text this morning. Help us to see both the glory and the power of Jesus and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Help us to see your love demonstrated in surprising ways during surprising times. Help us to trust your plan 
Help us to wait on your justice. And for those who have yet to bow the knee to Jesus, I pray that this morning you would open their eyes and their hearts and they would come and believe and be saved. And for Christians who are struggling this morning, maybe with the tribulation that's going on in their life, encourage them with this text. The frequency, the intensity, the duration. You've got it all and you've got them. May we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.